Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others in the way that Jesus loves us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listen in. So regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. to Sunday service. It's very wonderful to see everybody. It's, um, what is it? It is January, oh my god, what's the date? January 10th. Um, and it's very wonderful to see everybody here and to be able to worship together. Uh, I hope your 2021s are going great. Um, ours is going great. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if y'all really feel this with me at all, but I feel like life does not slow down. Um, maybe some of us, we feel like life has come to a standstill. I, my, personally, I think, I think, you know, life can, you know, life can slow down a little bit, you know, maybe go a little bit less fast. Um, but we are already in January and we are already in the double digits of January as of today. Um, and I hope everybody is doing well this morning. I just want to um, lift up a very a very quick prayer um, on behalf of our congregation um, regarding um, our country really fast, just because I think in light of everything that has been going down, um, especially this week, I think it has been um, interesting. Mm, a moment of you know heartbreak for people who are not treated so kindly for something far less far far less um because of the color of their skin and uh, also for the fact that you know our nation has really gone to this point where you know um people can be incited by our president to storm the nation's capital and also wave the banner of jesus saves um that's that's something that we must we must be active to respond to because we are a christian um to many this could be what represents christ and we must be quick to be active and we must be quick to lament and repent on behalf of our of our nation because we are in the midst of not just individual but social sin and we are all in the body together and um it does fall upon our heads in some way shape or form so i'm just gonna lift up a quick prayer um and then we'll go into whatever else that we have to do for the rest of the day so if you guys can just pray with me god i i just want to before anything else lord i just want to lift up our country to you god uh, lord would you God, would you forgive us? Um, would you have mercy on us? Have mercy on us, Lord. We have fallen short of your glory. Our brothers and sisters are doing many things that are inconsistent with who you are, Jesus, in your name. God, we pray for mercy that you would have mercy on those who are committing sin. Lord, we pray 
for healing and restoration for those who are hurting. Most importantly, God, we pray, Father, that you would forgive us, that you would forgive us of this grave act of injustice that we are actively committing as a nation, hurting other people because of trivial things like the color of their skin, not acknowledging their worth in you, Jesus. So God, be, would you, would you just forgive them? Would you forgive us? And Father God, would you give us boldness to be more than the people before us, to represent you, Father, with more openness and honesty and action? Lord, I pray for a congregation that seeks to to carry out your word and your love, not just in word, but in deed. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to continue through. Um, before I move into the rest of our sermon, I want to just really encourage you guys to be praying for our country. I think this is an important practice to start doing. Um, words escape me right now. It has been a very taxing and trying week. But, um, yeah, let's just continue to pray for our country. Uh, if there are people that want to talk about that, please, just, we'll talk. Uh, but for now, we will read God's word. We are continuing through our sermon series on Romans. The one book in the Bible I said I would never preach in. But here we are, Romans chapter 3. Sorry, my throat. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to the rest of this chapter. It's hot. It's getting hot. I, all right. Roman, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through the rest of the chapter. I'm reading from the ESV. Well, we're reading from God's holy and perfect word. So NIV, NRSV, whatever works for you. It's fine. We're not rising together, but, you know, this is God's holy and perfect word, so hold it with the reverence that it is due. This is the word of the Lord. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join with me in praying? This is your word. This is your love for us. And so, God, we just pray that you would help us. Help us to see you. Help us to know you, God. Father, we just, Abba, we just lift up our hearts to you. Nothing else will do, God. Nothing else will do but you, God. Father, I pray that this would be the confession that is on our lips as we look to you, Jesus. Abba, I am nothing. I am. From dust I have come and from dust I will return. This is not my power. This is not my might. It is not my glory. I confess with a whole heart, a clear conscience before your congregation and your church, that this is your glory and your wisdom and your, your word. So God, I just pray that it would not be me, but you who reaches the lips and the hearts of those who, who hear. I pray, God, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see what you have for us. Open the ears, ears of our souls to hear you when you call upon us. Holy Spirit, take us to the next level with you wherever we are, in whatever space we inhabit right now. Holy Spirit, that you would fall upon every heart. God, whatever it is that we have been wrestling with this past week, Jesus, that you would break any ties that we might have come into agreement with this week, any lies that might keep us from hearing you, Jesus, that everything would go radio silent. And that we would be able to hear you for what you have for us. Abba, hide us behind, hide me behind your cross. That only you are magnified and that you are glorified. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. God, we give you all glory and all honor and all in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Today's sermon. I'm going to give you a disclaimer because I think until maybe like maybe until the rest of Romans, I'm gonna this this sermon series is going to be fraught with disclaimers. Um I apologize in advance. Um that is not just a that is not just an apology to you, that is an apology to me. It is just I pray that you are able to hear it, uh, not as a person's word, but as God's word, holy and active and living. For I have to confess that I am not in a place to be a standard of righteousness. I'm not in a place to be a standard, a paradigm, an ideal to achieve of righteousness. Only Christ is that. I am just as sinful. I'm just as broken and I'm just as weak. So don't hold me don't don't ever think that this is like something that I I am pushing onto you. This is by God through God, held 
by God for us and we can hold each other accountable and, and encourage one another as we as we cross over in sanctification from sin to grace. So so I, I just want to lay that onto you in advance. Be, be blessed. Be encouraged. Um, please do not feel attacked. This is by no means um, with that intention or that awareness. Okay, so Romans chapter 3. The sermon title is Under Grace. Under Grace. The main idea is simple. His grace is a gift to all sinners. I'm going to say that one more time. His grace is a gift to all sinners. Now, I didn't read all of Romans chapter 3. I was very tempted to. But I did not I did not feel that that was necessary to do like very at the very beginning. I do, though, want to read the first eight verses, so if you guys can look on with me, we're going to just read through Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through through 9, okay? Just so that you guys get context of what I'm about to talk about. This is the word of the Lord. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous and inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with sin, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So this, this chapter starts with Paul doing this discourse. I don't know if you guys um, have had like an old teacher. Paul here talks, he he's just talked about sin. He said a lot of crazy things, you know. Yet, last week was crazy. 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 Um, I'm not going to summarize last week's. I think if you don't know, you should just go and skim through it on YouTube yourself. Um, but last week's was crazy. And uh, Paul, at this point, is an, is an old fart. He turns on into an old fart professor type. He's been in ministry for 25 years, and he's taught the same thing over and over again. So he's like, all right, y'all, I've heard it all. I've heard all the counter arguments. I've heard all the questions. And he starts, you know, just, you know, when that old teacher's like, I know what you youngins are thinking. Like, that's kind of what Paul gets into, right? He starts to do this little, you know, dialogue with just himself. Um, when you teach a class for very long and you start to know exactly what people will say. And so he brings up counter questions, right? He says, does that mean that Jews are not important? Yes, they are still important, right? Doesn't mean that, you know, some of us are unfaithful. Does that nullify the faithfulness of God? And this word faithfulness here 
the faithfulness of, of Jews is, is unbelief, this connotation of unbelief. And this faithfulness of God is not actually just unbelief, but it's um, it's trust, it's value, and it's proof. So does this unbelief nullify the value, the proof, trust of God? It also has this connotation of covenant faithfulness, right? Like, it's this understanding of, like, almost fidelity, right? If we are unfaithful, if we are adulterous in our relationship with the Lord, will he leave us? By no means! Because God will be in covenant if everybody else is not loyal to it, not just because he loves us, but because he is faithful. That is just who he is. For example, just because I... Let's say, let's say that me, I apologize, my younger sister is here now. Uh, I was going to use Kavana, but I'm going to use the person right behind her. Um, you know, my younger sister is here now, and my younger sister and I, we, we look very alike, right? But she is very different from me. Very different from me. We are, we are, we are quite different. Um, the only thing that we have in common Oh no, we don't have any of them in common. She's an ISFJ and I'm an ENTP. So we have, oh yeah, we have, <laughs> we have nothing in common uh, in terms of the way that we work and function. Um, and she is who he is. She is who she is, right? And let's say that, you know, she is loyal and I am, or actually maybe she is introverted and I am extroverted, right? If I cease to be you know, I could say like, oh, I am extroverted and she's introverted. So she gets to, she has the freedom to introvert around people because I'm extroverted. But just because I leave, does that mean that she all of a sudden becomes extroverted? No, right? I could say like, oh, I am, she has, she is free to not think and be more of a feeler because I will always be a hyperlogical. Does that mean that just because I leave, she is no longer a feeler? No. In the same way, faithfulness to God is a characteristic that cannot be changed. He is that way because that is his person. That is his personality. That is in his character. And his faithfulness, his loyalty to us is not going to change regardless of our actions because that is just who God is. In that same way, the reality and the proof of God doesn't change just because we don't believe in it. Just because I turn around and I cannot see Tony does not mean that Tony ceases to exist. We tend to be so, we tend to think so highly of our logic and our perspective that all of a sudden when we cannot see the existence or perspective of something, that they must not be able to exist. And so that existence is dependent on our belief. God is existing regardless of whether or not you think he does that's the scary part about god and that's the scary part about belief because if god is who he says he is and he exists regardless of whether or not you think so there are ramifications not to god about that but to you and your eternity and he just you know knocks that out of the park he then he says you know he addresses this quintessential counter argument i'm knocking out all my counter arguments Right now, right here, because, you know, Apostle Paul gives like five. So, <laughs> you know, it was hard to think of another one. Um, but, you know, this, he, he then goes into like, then is it, you know, if, 
Is it unfair for God to inflict wrath on us? Yes, it would be unfair for God to inflict wrath on us if we were equal to him. Let's put it this way. If I and Tony got into a disagreement, let's say, let's say, I mean, we all have these disagreements, right? We like, let's say, Tony, so I'm, I'm an ENTP. I don't know if y'all know Myers-Briggs. If you don't believe in it, that's okay. I'm an ENTP, which means I'm extroverted, intuitive, I'm thinker, and I'm perceptive, which means I, I, I go by the flow. Um, she's ISFJ, so she's introverted, she's sensing, she's feeling, and she's uh, a strong J, which means she has clear lines and boundaries in her time and in her life. So she's very in the moment, very pragmatic, very practical, and I'm very thinking-oriented, very, I mean, y'all know me, uh, extroverted, I like, I like to play, um, right? And let's say I do something. Let's say I step all over her boundaries and I um, disrespect her on something, right? I'm her older sister. My intentions are good, right? And not in any point do I ever think that, you know, she, I, do I ever desire harm to come upon her or do, will I ever let harm come upon her? Um, within my power, I will not let that happen, right? So my intentions are probably as good as it can get, right? Um, but does that change the fact that she has every right to feel the way that she feels? There's a saying that the road to hell is marked with good intentions, right? And sometimes the intention of an individual does not necessarily change the objective outcome of what that intention has brought, have, has birthed. Even if we have good intentions, if we can hurt somebody in the midst of our good intentions, it does not change the fact that we have hurt somebody and that that has ramifications. There are consequences to actions. In that same way, even if God and we were equal, and we had good intentions. Our objective sin has consequence to action. Much more when God is judged and we are not, right? When our entire existence is dependent and consequential to the existence of God. So is it really unfair that God judges us? That God gets angry at our sin? That God gets angry at our rebellion? Can we really say that it is unfair? And then the next one, if through my sin, God's truth abounds to glory, why am I condemned? Why not do evil that good may come? I think these, these two, these two counter arguments are, are very critical to think through and think about because a lot of people will ask you that question in and out of church, right? Is it unfair of God to inflict wrath? And, um, you know, if grace covers over a multitude of sin, then why am I condemned? If, if my sin highlights the glory of God, why am I condemned? I'll take, I'll put it this way. I have been, um, under many, many troubling circumstances in my life. For example, um, when I was born, I was fatherless. Now I have a father that is better than any father I could have thought of or had for myself. And he is my dad to the very end of my life and then beyond that. But when I was born, I was fatherless. That had birthed so many different pains in my life. 
so many different things in my life that had come out of it. Um, anger, dissension, division in my heart. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Like even if you have a bad father, it's not quite the same as not having one at all. Um, of course, having a bad father is also very painful. But this is painful in a different way, and it has lasting consequences that leave scars on your soul. Um, now, much has come out of it. Much good has come out of it. I have understood greatly what it means to be adopt, adopted. Sonship is something that has new meaning for me because I understand what it is like to have to be loved so crazily and so sacrificially. And to be adopted into that. To be grafted into that. I understand so much. My parents and I, we have a wonderful relationship. I am a daddy's girl to the bitter end. Even if sometimes he scares me because he's strict. Um, and so much good has come out of this circumstance. I could have had a bad father. Instead, I have, I have a redeemer that has redeemed, that God has used. An imperfect human redeemer to redeem my situation. And it is better than it could have possibly been before. Does that, does that make it justified that I was born fatherless? Just because good comes out of evil, does that justify the evil? And I'll word it another way. Should we then take the view that any act is justified so long as it brings good in the end? In a human sense, if an, if an evil act brings good in the end, is it justified? The short answer, and the obvious one, is no, it's not. Then, is your sin nullified because God is glorified? No. The hard truth and the reality is no. And maybe some of you guys have more counter-arguments to this, and we can go back and forth about sin and grace. But I just wanted to address these off the bat, partially because the chapter did, but also partially because sometimes we need to be offended to come, be confronted with the reality of our situation. We are sinners. There is no going about, there is no going roundabout, there is no cutting corners, there is no way to justify something that is objectively bad and we can talk about it we can go back and forth about it but this is what it is right uh, and it brings us back to this point that believers should not so presume on the security that they fail to make every effort to bring their lives into obedience with christ right because yes christ has obeyed christ christ has obeyed god and we have been reconciled to god but just because we've been given that grace does not mean that we can ignore or be complacent about our sin. And that's something that we went over last week. Paul then goes into the fact that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Knowing the covenant doesn't nullify judgment because it doesn't nullify our sin. 
There are many verses afterwards to prove this. Um, I'm going to read that one more time. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Knowing the covenant does not nullify judgment because it does not nullify sin. Let me put it into perspective. In the 1900s, in the early to mid-1900s, nobody knew the negative effects of what? Tobacco. Just kidding. Um, tobacco, right? Nobody knew. <laughs> I'm just, it's a, it's a, it's a bad joke, kids. Cigarettes are bad, bad, bad joke. Um, how to recover? Yes. Yeah, so, cig- uh, so yes. In the, I'm sweating. In the early to mid 1900s, somebody lower the temperature. In the, in the early to mid 1900s, cigarettes were completely normalized. 14-year-olds smoked it. 12-year-olds smoked it. Everybody smoked it, right? Everybody, right? And it, it was, it was, it was natural, normal. You can smoke it in a jazz bar. You can smoke it in a restaurant. You can smoke it outside. You can smoke it inside. There were ashtrays on every, there were ashtrays on every single table, right? Ashtrays on every table because it was completely normal, completely normal to smoke. And then what happened? A lot of people got cancer, okay? It was clearly bad for you, but there was no way to undo the societal effect of how deeply entrenched tobacco was at that point. Sound familiar? We are going through another stage of that with the new generation right now. Um, There was no way to rid the generation of the entrenchment and the societal expectation and the normalization and almost the cool factor that cigarettes had, right? So the government, because it starts killing people off, and that's a really good reason to, you know, undo something that, you know, has been commercialized, uh, the government launches this anti-tobacco campaign, right? Launches all sorts of anti-drug, anti-alcohol, anti-tobacco. I, growing up in the hood, um, I was forced to do this preschool health thing in third to, I think it was the end, I think it was the beginning of third grade to fifth grade, where I would go to one person literally at seven, like everything started at 750. We had to be in the auditorium by 750 for something that I don't remember. And at 730, we would have to gather in her office and we would go through the debilitating effects of tobacco and alcohol, like alcoholism. Like I'm pretty sure tobacco has like 42 different chemicals, like formaldehyde, among other things, crazy things, tar. Um, alcoholism has like like 60 different effects. Um, and yet, that did not stop me from loving those two things throughout my high school career. Um, and so the government takes this like really interesting way and they're like well people are ignorant people are ignorant of the effects of tobacco therefore if we educate them if we educate them they will stop and all will be well in the world and in their health but what happens now now in 2021 
Everybody is educated and everybody is still in it. Amen. Why? The issue with sin was, uh, the issue with tobacco was pressure. It was the pressure of, of addiction and the societal pressure of peers. The fact that in work breaks, one of the only ways that you can get to know people is going on a smoke break with your coworkers. The fact that your boss will be smoking and, you know, offering you a cigarette after in happy hour after work. The fact that friends might deem you less cool. Now, if there's any friend that does that to you, young ones in the future, you let me know. I'm just kidding. Um, but don't under not under but don't anyway so you know there's this societal pressure right the, there's this peer pressure um in your work environments in your school environments to engage in substances i mean with alcohol it's like if you don't engage in happy hour like you don't get to know anybody right and then there's this added pressure of addiction once you get addicted to cigarettes every four periods i would shake like what am i supposed to do except to go and take another smoke break like there was nothing else for me to do in high school i knew how bad it was for me at a certain point i want to quit right i've already quit i've wanted to quit right um but it was really really excruciatingly difficult for me to quit not because i wasn't aware but because of the pressure that my body was under because of addiction and then also the societal pressure that i was under because of my peers right what i'm trying to say here is Teaching people not to smoke is not going to solve the pressure that is on them to smoke. So if the issue of this societal problem is pressure, all of a sudden making people knowledgeable is not going to solve the pressure. What you're doing is you're trying to fit a circle inside a square. If that's not the key to unlocking the door, you're not going to be able to turn the lock. In the same way, if the problem of sin is a matter of domination, if the problem of sin is a matter of slavery, it says, it said here, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. That word under sin, although we might overlook it, I think it's verse eight or verse nine, when it says under sin, what, what, what that word is actually talking about is this, it's introducing sin as this dominating, this dominating factor in your life. It's not a matter of ignorance. It's not a matter of this. It's not a matter of that. We are under the domination of sin. We are helpless to it, right? And just like how when when it really when it comes down to cigarettes, it's not knowledge that's going to break the pressure. It's a loosening of the pressure that's going to break the pressure. Just because you know that sin is sin doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to be able to break it better than you did before. Because the problem of sin is domination. So the knowledge of it was never meant to nullify it. <clears throat> Knowing the covenant doesn't nullify judgment because it doesn't nullify our sin. All of a sudden, knowing that sin is sin was never meant to cure it. That is our own association. Because we are thinking that we can do it. Oh, now that I know what it is, I can stop it. It's pride plus knowledge that leads to works righteousness. The law was never meant to go there. 
It is your and my and our implicit bias to read a set of laws and then try our best to adhere to it and then judge other people to it. That action of finding our righteousness by works is completely and totally done by us with no respect to the law. The law was never meant to nullify sin. Just like knowledge of cigarettes can never break an addiction. At this point, you might throw your hands in the air and say, well, what do I do then? You've been talking 30 minutes about this doesn't work and that don't work and this don't work and that don't work, right? So then what are you going to do, right? You know, just because sin brings good doesn't mean that sin is justified. You know, just because I, just because I think it's unfair doesn't mean that it's actually unfair. You know, just because my intentions are good doesn't mean that, you know, sin is obvious all of a sudden, like, nullified. Just because I know the law doesn't mean that all of a sudden sin is, so what am I supposed to do? And it goes into another, ver- like, verse-by-verse verse quoting of different Psalms, Isaiah. Man, Paul really, he knows scripture, and he really rubs it in. For the next time, we're like, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Um, and then goes into our chapter today or our, the passage that we have read today. At this point, a lot of us are asking, well, then what do I do? Will you look with me to 21? Or from 20, actually. Actually, let's do from 19. <laughs> let's do from 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, For since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. By his grace, as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. Verse 22 says the faith of Jesus Christ. I just want to like, you know, knock out some key things before we go right into you know, what this means for us. Verse 22, it says the faith of Jesus Christ. This is a possessive understanding. It is that Jesus is both an object of our faith and possesses our faith, right? So it's this faith in Christ and this faith that is Christ. The righteousness given through faith of Jesus Christ, which is an object. Jesus is the object of our faith. Jesus is the owner of our faith. Given for all who believe. So from the right off the bat, we see that we need God's faith to believe in him. And then it goes into verse 323. Every person has listened to it over and over again. One of the most overquoted parts of scripture to condemn people. I have used it all throughout my college career. All fall short of glory of God. Thank you. All fall short. 
of the glory of God. This absolute verse. But oftentimes, just like John 3.16, we focus so much on that absolute that we miss the very, arguably one of the main ideas of this whole book. And that's verse 24. And are justified. It says in the ESV by his grace as a gift. But it's as a gift by his grace. In terms of the order of the Greek. As a gift by his grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And I just want to break down verse 24 a little bit for y'all. The word justified is the same word. Is the same root as the word righteousness here in particular. So what it is is that we are made righteous. We just heard righteousness through faith of Christ, right? We are justified, aka made righteous as a gift. The first thing is that right the word, the verb made righteous and then gift in the Greek are side by side to give the visual connotation. That this righteousness that we are being made into is a gift. Side by side. It's over accentuated in, in, the, in the syntax. Justified as a gift by his grace. Through the redemption or release. The word redemption also means release. Remission from sin, which is in Christ Jesus. Now... You might miss this. All have sinned. And therefore, that's why righteousness is available to all who believe. Not some. Not the person next to you, but not you. All. All, all. All, all. That's very important. That's very important. Righteousness is available to all as a gift. Because Every single person is a sinner. The reason why the gift of grace is a free gift to all is because everybody is a sinner. You cannot say grace is a free gift to all and that everybody is not a sinner or that there are like we are good people and genuinely believe it. I mean, not saying that you are not good people. I love you all. But we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of God's glory, his doxa. That's just what it is. And this redemption. So he's just that we're made righteous as a gift by his grace, as a gift. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption has this connotation of liberation. Release or liberation by paying a price. Now I want to break down. There are two elements to this redemption. And you guys might be like, oh, Jane is really, she's really breaking it down thought by thought. But the reason why I am. It's because you cannot just feel grace and understand the depth of God. We love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind. You must understand redemption. In order to experience the depth and the, the weight of it. Right. 
redemption, this liberation by paying a price. And what that means is, and it goes into it, right? Because there's this word that happens right afterwards in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So there's this word redemption and there's this word propitiation. So this word redemption, release, liberation from what? When you are liberated, you are liberated from domination. It is a direct, the word redemption is directly tied in relationship to under sin. In this passage, something you would not catch normally. But the tie of redemption is directly tied to under sin. And it's a liberation from domination by paying a price. So we have this understanding of this liberation from sin. And then this word, this big word called propitiation. Sounds like a curse word. Just kidding. It doesn't. don't know why I go there. Um, but it, it, <laughs> propitiation. This word propitiation um, is a particular word. And it has this particular connotation of atonement. It's hot in here. This atonement, the sacrifice of perfect atonement. Okay? So this word propitiation is directly tied to Yom Kippur. I don't know if you guys know Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur happens at the at the end of September, and it's the Day of Atonement for everybody, for everybody um, who is a Jew. And it's the day where they sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices on the altar of the covenant in a particular place, and that's supposed to, it's dedicated for sin. Washing away sin. Yearly washing away of sin. Propitiation is a direct reference to atonement. Faith in the blood covers you in that atonement. Propitiation as a sacrifice of atonement, specifically atonement as the erasing sin, by paying a price, puts ample emphasis on blood. Propitiation is a blood sacrifice. Propitiation can only be done life for life. That's why sacrifices needed to be made. Propitiation ties you to the blood of the Lamb, not just to the life of the Lamb, not just to the crucifixion of the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb. It is a reference to Exodus. It is a reference to Leviticus. It is a reference to Deuteronomy. It is a reference to the brokenness of human sin. So in this, we see this remission of sin or, or this expiation, this liberation of sin by paying a price. And then we see this sacrifice of atonement. In blood, this blood sacrifice. And the specific thing about propitiation in terms of atonement is what? Atonement is important because it turns away the wrath of God. So when propitiation happens, it's a sacrifice of atonement, not just because it's the particular thing of propitiation. It's not just about justice. It's not just about paying a price that needs to be paid. It's about turning away the wrath of God. So we see this redemption element, right? 
where there is this liberation by paying a price. Propitiation is the spending of blood, life for life, to turn away the wrath of God. And in both of these elements, a liberation from slavery by paying a hefty price and the turning away of the wrath of God by blood. These two things are tied in in this passage to what? The justice of God. The word justice here is also tied to righteousness. Righteousness is a very key theme in Romans. If you don't remember anything else from Romans, it's that your righteousness is given to you by faith and faith alone, that it is tied to the justice of God, that it is tied to justification, that it is tied to grace as a gift, and that it happens only in faith. But the justice of God, the same root word, saving righteousness, the process by which he puts people before him. What I mean by that is, when God does things like the Passover, you know how you put the blood of lamb, the blood of that perfect lamb on the, and the, the angel of death passes by, they see the sin, but they look at the blood and they pass over. That's called mercy. But mercy is uncharacteristic of justice. What I mean by that is, you have to break justice to show mercy. What I mean by that is, in order for God's mercy to be shown to us, a due payment has to be not paid. Like, not paying rent. Mercy goes against rent. Mercy is uncharacteristic of justice, which is law and order. Fairness, the weights, the scales. And God's mercy does not erase a cost altogether. God's mercy does not erase his just nature. Just because he shows you mercy doesn't mean the price disappears. And the sacrifice of Christ displays the justice of God by showing us our due cost. The sacrifice of Christ displays the justice of God just as much as it displays the grace of God just as much as it displays the love of God and the righteousness of God, it also displays the justice of God because it makes us face to face with what it cost. Justice is served in the cross. Through the turning away of God's wrath through blood and the liberation of power from sin by paying a price, justice is served. that also means that we've been paid for 
And so now we are not under sin, but under grace. It's like when, like, for example, like when, you know, I love, actually, that's not true. I'm a DC fan. I don't know. If, I don't know. It's not very popular. I'm a DC fan. Young ones do not watch DC movies that are animated. They're not, they are pretty much all rated R, but, um, and it's, it's because of the gore. I don't know why. Okay, so DC, I love DC. But the popular, you know, normalized superhero firm universe. <laughs> I'm too old. Uh, the universe is Marvel. Now, why is Marvel so big? Why is Marvel so big? Why is Marvel so big? Because it is owned by Disney. That is the reason why Marvel is as successful as it is. Let's be real here. Marvel is owned by Disney. That is what makes Marvel so great. And that's why when you give... When you give... When you, when, that's why Disney Plus is so valuable. Because when you get Disney Plus, you get Disney and everything Disney owns. It's not necessarily explicitly Disney, but it clearly is Disney because it's in Disney Plus, right? And if you buy Disney, you get Marvel. It's like the best of both worlds, right? I'm so sorry that this is the example I wrote. Hopefully it provides comic relief. But just as when Marvel was bought out, they were put under Disney. And that made them so much better. When we are bought out by the price of justice that Christ has paid, we now go from being whatever we were under before, directly under something else. So now... Not to put us as Marvel under Disney. If Grace is Disney and Disney has bought out Marvel completely, that doesn't just mean that Marvel is floating on its own. It means that Marvel is under Disney. We understand this so easily when it comes to companies and corporations, and yet why do not why do we not expect this in our own lives? We are now under Grace. Grace is not your tool. Grace is not something to exploit. Grace is not something to take advantage of. Grace is the dominating power over your life that covers everything in it. I know this was a lot, but how can we apply this into our lives? This release, liberation to all who believe by paying a price. The sacrifice of atonement by turning away the, the wrath of God and those two things being justice. In response to all of these things. The fact that nothing can nullify sin. Not even the law. Because the law, the function of the law was just to educate, not to take away domination. To the earlier answer, well then, what do I do? 
It's a trick question. You can't do anything. But to all who believe in him, to all who believe in God, you are made righteous. Justice is served by the blood of the Lamb. And you are now no longer under sin, but under grace. Sounds great. Sounds lovely. But I'm about to explain the ways that we might need to apply this into our lives. And church, I just want to implore us to all be vulnerable with ourselves. The first thing I want to address is the overemphasis of our efforts. Often, when we do something right, we have a high view of ourselves. When you're a good daughter or a good son, boom, 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 right? You get this right. I'm a good man. I'm a good woman. We have a high view, higher view of ourselves, especially in comparison to maybe our peers, people our age. On the flip side, when we break these things, we condemn ourselves. That is something that is contrary to the grace that you've received. Do you understand why it is pride? You are under grace. Grace is the all-encompassing power that has shifted your life from death to life. Grace is not a candy that you can swirl around in your mouth and swallow. We can, I can baby you through it, if that's what you want. But I will tell you that overemphasizing your effort is a grave contradiction to the gospel that has catastrophic consequences on your soul. Because you are under grace. You do not have the power to override it. And your assumption that your actions can mean more than it is our folly in believing we are better than it. On the other end, some of us might be unwilling to receive that grace. We are so confronted with our brokenness. We are so confronted with our lack of humanity. We're so confronted with our depravity that we're like, there's no way, God. Why do you love me? It doesn't make sense to me. And so we reject it or we shy away from it or we push it out of our lives.
That is also something that you need humility about. Not to be unyo unyo uchuchu about. We need to humble ourselves. Grace was bought with the blood of the Lamb. Somebody died for your grace. Your secret sins do not weigh more heavily than the grace of God. Than the weight of the blood of the Son of God. Just as much as we need mercy and love in the moment of understanding this, we must understand the need for humility. We must humble ourselves. On the other end, some of us might overemphasize God's grace and underemphasize his our sin. I am a sinner, but God loves me, and so it's okay. Uh, I I kind of like like what I'm doing right now, and I don't really I don't really want to break it. And I mean, God loves me, and He loves me. I didn't like do it. He He's the one who loves me, and and I believe in that. So, you know, I, like, really don't want to let this one thing go. Um, I know it's, like, bad for me or whatever, but, yeah, I like doing it. And so, there is a difference between cheapening grace and deepening understanding of the gospel in your life. What I mean by that is, to dwell in his grace doesn't mean that you have to lessen your sin. There is a difference between dwelling in God's grace for the full weight that it has and seeing only God's grace because you have nullified your sin in your heart. There is a difference between all of those things. The reality of grace is that God is holy and God cannot exist where there is sin. So he paid for it so that he can be with you and me. And you are now under grace and it has dominion over you, over anything you can say. Even if we don't know how to deal with God's grace, that it covers us when we don't deserve it. We must face the reality of the fact that grace is something we adhere to. But God, I'm such a bad person. You are under grace. But God, I have been broken in the way that I... You are under grace. But God, I barely believe in you. And I don't act in a way that is aligned. You are under grace. 
lot of the times our unbelief of God's grace is a matter of humility. Don't just be like, no, God, no, God, you couldn't have. I still need to, I still, God has covered you already. Jane, how do I do this practically? I can take you a step-by-step process, but every case-by-case sin and, and application of this grace and this weight of grace is going to look different. I will say that it is a heart posture. Sometimes, your opinion of yourself, your condemnation of yourself, will ring in your hearts and in your ears louder than scripture. Sometimes you will look at yourself and you will say, I'm bad. I'm really, really bad. And you won't hear God. I'm far from God. I'm far. You won't hear God. To confront yourself with the reality of the gospel might mean to force yourself to look grace in the eyes. Even when you don't believe you deserve it. To humble yourself and take it. To stop thinking. To stop unraveling yourself and your value in your anxious thoughts. And to pause all of that and look the gospel in the face. Look this this passage in the face. Everything that you could have done, every weakness, Every insecurity, every pain, every sin, every ounce of depravity in your life, whether it's yours or another person's, has been paid by the blood of the Lamb. Not by your neighbor on the street. By the blood of the Son of God. Look it in the face. Don't overvalue your anxious thoughts and insecurities over God. Don't give it more weight in your life than the reality of the weight of glory. We are under grace. We've been bought out. Justice was served. Just as you or I can't even fathom. A wrath was turned away that we can't even believe. Because of what? Romans 5.8. It's coming because it's chapter 5. For God demonstrates his love. Do you feel like God doesn't love you? 
Look the gospel in the face. Do you feel like God's grace doesn't apply to you? Look the gospel in the face. I say this to you not as somebody who is condemning you or disciplining you, but as somebody who is just as in need of doing that myself. You or me, we all need to reconsider the weight of glory. Your words, your thoughts are not more important than the blood of the Lamb. You are not more right than God. You are not more right about yourself than God. Don't get it twisted. What God has done, you can never undo. And if you don't feel like God's grace is upon you, and if you don't feel like God loves you, look the gospel in the face and say it again. Look bleeding Jesus in the face. And say it again. Say it. Tell a guy who died for you that you don't mean nothing to him. Have you died for anybody? Do you know what that feels like? And yet, just because we don't understand, doesn't mean that God is different. He is so faithful. The last bit, I didn't really touch much upon it, but it talks about how we are not supposed to boast. Number one, it stifles worship. Number two, our accomplishments are too too imperfect. It takes a real understanding of grace to acknowledge that we are imperfect people and to be content in that. I say that myself. I'm also a person that is in need of humility constantly. I'm not any more humble than you are. I'm really no different. But let's understand the weight of grace. Apply it in our darkest moments. And go from saying, God, how can you love me to, ah, God, I am this way. And yet you love me. For those of you guys who don't know God's love and just refuse to believe it because of your own experiences, to you I say, I feel you. I've been there before. You see that 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 thing up up there where it says, you know, you know, is it unfair for God to inflict wrath upon us? A lot of the time, I felt like God's judgment of one person versus another was unfair. Why me? Why am I saved and not another person? 
How can I go to heaven and people I love go to hell? I know what it's like to be angry at God, and I know what it's like to be blocked off from the Lord. But maybe one way you can apply this word is to be open to God's love. It ain't going to do you no harm. At the very least, it'll stop you from making a big mistake of acting like you know what it's like to die for another person. Is it so hard to humble ourselves? Isn't it interesting that the only way to apply grace is to humble yourself? To look God's love in the face. To be quiet for one second and stop talking over his love. Let's take a moment to pray. From wherever you're listening, we hope you are blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.